Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome back to another installment of the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stockhouse, and unfortunately, Chris is still buried in his dissertation. This week, we've got a book review by Gietinger about two new books on the November Revolution of 1918-19, and an overview of the ins and outs of working in an archive. So, without further ado, the news. Start off this week. I wanted to cover a review put together by Klaus Gietinger for H. Sochenkult. As you know from our previous news sections, Chris and I like to cover emerging research on long-term trends that feed into the development of Nazism when and as they pop up. So Gietinger has taken a look at two new books about the German November Revolution of 1918-19 that followed the First World War. Obviously, I was interested. The November Revolution is an important milestone that keeps coming up, if you remember our episode about Reinhard Heydrich and other assorted discussions on the war youth generation, this pivotal moment was when guiding political narratives about the stab in the back and the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy both came into being. They trace in large part to this moment when Freikorps militias cooperated with the new social democratic government to crush a number of breakaway Soviet republics across Germany in the fall and winter following the First World War. The best known of these would be the Berlin Spartacist Uprising and the short-lived People's Republic of Munich, but there were also Soviets in the Friesenland and the Rhineland, and even an armed insurrection by a Red Army of the Ruhr when Freikorps attempted to topple the government after crushing the first wave of these breakaway republics. It's hard to overemphasize the effect that this experience had on German political culture and the rise of folkish politics. So it always seemed that a communist revolution was a real possibility after this point that had been narrowly averted through a bloody civil war. So, of course, any new books on the period of particular interest. Gietinger has taken a look at both Wolfgang Mises' The Revolution of 1918-19, The True Beginning of Our Democracy, and Joachim Kepner's 1918 Uprising for Freedom, The Revolution of the Level-Headed. Now, Gietinger begins by pointing out the only comprehensive overview of the revolution up to this point has remained Drabkin's November Revolution 1918. These new books, though, give good coverage to the masses who carried out the revolution by placing them at the center of events, or in dialogue with when they were or were not heeded by political masters. In particular, Nice spends the time to explore the ideas in circulation among factory councils, Soviets in the strict sense, workers' councils, which will be of interest to anyone who's investigating the development of communist ideology in Germany during a period when leading figures such as Luxembourg and Liebsknecht or the debates at Halle tend to steal the limelight. The pact between SPD leadership and the Freikorps 
to crush the left wing comes under close scrutiny as well. Gitenga's primary criticism of the work it focuses on absences of recent research on political and cultural figures, but the attention to the broad base of support among the workers' councils for the socialization of large factories comes in for praise. In this respect, the books offer an interesting insight into the mixing and matching of ideologies going on in post-war Germany, when these demands for socialization coexisted with calls for a national assembly, a democratic military, and economy in contradiction to both SPD and union leadership. The ebert Gröner Pact is portrayed as distrust of the masses, the factory councils, a fear of Bolshevism more generally, and above all, a desire to remain in power. And this is when we're getting into judging what exactly undermined these democratic institutions as they were being established. In this sense, the SPD leadership was unable to overcome its connections to the Old Reich, its nationalism, its connections with military leadership, their own administration, and their own fear of being removed from office. When mass strikes by the syndicalist movements in the Ruhrgebiet and the Red Army of the Rhine raised the fear of revolution, the SPD leadership was more than willing to authorize brutal terror unleashed by the Freikorps. As Gietinger highlights, taken together, these books point toward the formation of fascist politics in government-sanctioned terror. As usual, I haven't read them myself, uh, relying on others' reviews, but I would add my hopes to Gietinger's that they will draw attention to the significance of the German Revolution in the broader scope of 20th century history. Now, on to the main event. My friend Christian Gropp was in town recently on a vacation-slash-delayed honeymoon of sorts with Heike, and of course I was fortunate enough to have them drop by and play host while they were here. So we got to talking about the podcast and what it is to be a historian and work in archives and all of everything that goes along with being an archivist and being a historian. And he suggested for an episode idea that I put together something that just talked through the process of developing a research project and the actual ins and outs of working in an archive. Seemed like a fine idea. So today I'm going to cover step-by-step step, preparation, finding a topic, narrowing it down to a research question, finding collections that can answer the questions that you're interested in, and then how you plan and go about carrying out the research once you're in the archive. So hopefully it will be of some interest to those of you out there. And certainly if you have never worked in an archive before and are interested about what goes into writing history, or you are a student who's looking forward to it, or you are an established researcher just interested to hear some of the tips and tricks that others do in their own research, I would love to hear what you have to say, and yeah, hopefully it will be of some use to everybody. So, let us begin at the beginning. Preparation. The research before the research. Let's say you're a historian looking for your next project. Uh, the process is basically asking an incessant stream of questions until you get to the one that you can't answer that you really want to. The best advice I ever received was to pick something that interests you about a topic. When you're looking at a graduate degree or writing an academic book like this, you're committing an investment of anywhere between two years to a decade of your life. That's a long time, so it's important that you narrow this down to a subject that's going to hold your interest through. 
you know, even when you pick something that you enjoy, you're going to find yourself at that point about three quarters of the way through where it goes from inspiration to perspiration. And you've just got to power out the last bit. The first 90% of the project is going to take 10% of your effort because you're busy solving solving the puzzle, figuring out the bits, finding new things. It's great. And then that last 10% where you're putting on the spit shine and doing the final little fiddly things with organization and making sure that your points are just presented just so and clear and all that stuff. That's where you, all your time is going to go. And the only thing that's going to carry you through is that you actually care about what you're doing. So yeah, it's, it's a long time. Pick something that you're going to enjoy doing for that long. And for example, I knew that I wanted to write more about Nazi Germany because of this paradox where a cultured European society had completely upset everything that we thought we knew about civilization and progress by perpetrating genocide on this unmatched scale. Right? So why? Why does that happen? Why would people support Hitler? From there, I was narrowing things down and I arrived at this tension that I couldn't quite resolve in the answer. Because on the one hand, people would talk about Hitler's charisma and his popularity coming on the heels of Versailles and the Great Depression, and that made enough sense to me. But on the other side, I couldn't square that with the idea of terror as one of the pillars of the regime, right? How can you have a popular dictatorship that relies on terror? And so the more I thought about that, the weirder it seemed. And I gradually realized how little I knew about how things functioned, uh, at least on the terror side of things, beyond the Holocaust. So if you think about the Nazi regime as a building being held up by three pillars, there was one labeled Hitler and another one labeled propaganda, and then this third black box of questions in the middle labeled terror. So I wanted to dig further into that. That's, that's how I ended up doing what I was doing. So I knew I wanted to write about terror at that point, and I knew that the Gestapo were a key mover in that system, so I needed to learn more about them for the next step. That's when you get into the literature review and begin to look into the larger dialogue around the issue that you're investigating. So I started the literature review by pulling all of the latest books I could find about the topic. And then from there, just breaking down the bibliographies, noting which of the older books, like those key seminal works that everybody keeps going back to, the book on the subject, right? And when something would appear multiple times across sources, then I would go in, I would make sure I'd pull that one as well. I found as many articles and edited collections on the theme as I could, which would then draw out this broader conversation and the full range of discussion that was going on, because a lot of people who end up going on to write the books will address bits and pieces of the broader research in what they're doing, but they don't really explore it in the same way or highlight the individual aspects that might get moved into the background. So the full range of conversation would come across in these edited collections. And then I would digest all the material and, and wrote it up as my own thoughts on what trends and conversations were going on, how they spoke to the questions that I had, and sat back again to think about, okay, well, what what am I going to do in all of this? What conversation here now that I know what's there, what questions do I still have? What seems to be satisfactorily resolved? Where are the tensions still that I, I want to know more? Well, at this point, it came down to another question. What question do you want to answer? Well, there are different schools of thought about how to arrive at a question. And I personally think that they really vary by what stage of the research you're at. 
as you get into serious research and you develop over the years a set of questions and issues that you're particularly interested in, you're going to find innumerable rabbit holes along the way that you just don't have the time to go down. And no matter how fastidious you are about tying up all the loose ends, eventually you reach this point at any project where you just cannot take on any more information. You have your set of issues that you're going to deal with and you have to focus on them and finish what's on your plate before you take on anything else. So going back to your unfinished business can occupy an entire career in some cases and develops into an ongoing program of questions to be answered. So if you're further along, then you can really step back and you can think about all the material you looked at and what whatever loose ends there are that need tying up and you can start posing questions. And those research questions become vital to put limits on the work and keep you focused on the task at hand so you don't waste energy following every interesting lead that pops up because they will be legion. There's this great quote from an American writer, uh, his name escapes me at the moment. But anyway, he said something to the effect that ideas are like rabbits. Once you have two of them to put together, you'll have more of them than we know what to do with, right? But let's say you're, you're at a different point. You're coming to the profession bright-eyed and bushy-tailed or looking for a change of pace. How do you find your groove or break out of whatever rut you happen to be trapped in, right? One approach is to come at things through the secondary literature. And that's certainly where I started in terms of discovering what it was that I wanted to work with. That clues you into what conversations are happening between scholars, what sources they're using, really what's out there. And from that, what you might want to find more about, because unless you're going to invest a lot of time in just going through archives, it really pays to begin reading the research that's out there and see where people are going to find material. The well is only so deep, right? Now, another approach that I've found extremely fruitful is to find interesting sources within that and then figure out what it is that they're going to tell you. So, you know, find a source base that speaks to a particular topic or is just a lot of fun to read, like the Gestapo or the denazification files or diaries or memoirs. Just find a collection or some type of source Find something that speaks to whatever you want to do and then just immerse yourself in it and read and, and read and read and read some more. Just go through it. And then after you've done that for a week or three, more and more connections will start popping off in your head. You'll see trends and patterns, leads, little curious exceptions and outliers that don't fit with everything else. And from there, you start to get to know what you need to look at and, and get a better idea of what questions need to be answered. What what loose ends are out there that need to be resolved. Now, this is the best way I've found for myself to get started on a project, at least, simply because in the early stages, it gives you a true north to kind of calibrate your compass by. Once you have one set of sources that you're familiar with and that you've started to go through and, and see intriguing phenomenon come out of, that's when, as you branch out, you're much better equipped to see where other sources are casting the same events in a different light. And that allows you to then begin to add depth and complexity to the picture that you're putting together. Ultimately, you're building towards a research question. Whether you're starting out your search and hunt of sources that speak to a particular theme that you want to address or putting structures and limits around whatever your preliminary inquiries have revealed. The example from the book that I have right now is how did the Gestapo enforce laws governing criticism? So 
that keeps me focused, that keeps me zeroed in on what it is that I want to do. And every time I go out and I collect material or I'm working through whatever material I have mined from the archives over the years, that lets me concentrate my efforts. Personally, I like drawing these questions from the sources because it largely renders your next problem moot. But eventually, you're going to come to a point in your research, either at the beginning or when you're hitting a dead end halfway through, when you need to figure out what sources can answer the question that you have. The issue here is that different sources answer different questions. And I know that that sounds anodyne, but half of the trick is matching the right question with the right source. And what do I mean by that, though? Well, if we oversimplify the problem looking at policing, just because that's what I know best, right? Do you want to know how the police operated? Or do you want to know what effect that had on the people who came in contact with the system? Because if you want to know how the system functioned as a whole, memoirs and diaries will only give you a window into how things operated, glimpsed through a single life. Now, one experience does not a system make. And even if you hear the same story over and over again, that narrative could be reflecting a higher profile part of the system. If we use the metaphor of piecing together a puzzle, let's say, you may have a clear part of the picture pieced together, but we don't yet know how big it is as part of the larger portrait, whether it belongs here in the center or if it's off in its own little corner, whether we're dealing with a 1000 piece puzzle or we're dealing with a 200 piece puzzle, right? Like the relative size of what we're looking at, everything's out of whack, we don't know yet. This would be what's known as anecdotal evidence. Mass collections are really the only way that you can answer questions that put experiences into a, a broader context. Uh, if you ask a different question, though, let's say you want to flip the whole issue on its head and you want to know the subjective experience of going through the system, well, all of a sudden the case files are practically useless and going through collections of diaries or memoirs are going to be the only way that you can access those experiences of a particular situation. My point here is that there are no perfect sources. You need to be aware of the author of a source, the conditions under which they produced it, their purpose, their perspective, the intended audience, so on and so forth, right? And the reason I like coming at research questions through primary sources myself is because you become better able to judge these peculiarities and understand what question a source can reasonably answer the more you work with them. And that subject knowledge is, is necessary to judge what you can do with a particular collection. Now, you should never get too attached to an idea before you have contact with the sources. The whole approach of using theory to bridge the gaps in whatever narratives you can build from available material is totally backward in my mind. Sometimes you just have to accept that you can't get the answer to a particular question because otherwise you begin to build a narrative that prejudices you towards something that may be totally incorrect. Now, approaching the subject through secondary research can also get you caught in derivative projects. I want to be clear here that these can reveal important insights by using the same sources and make valuable new contributions to conversation. But if I'm being honest, real talk, I came up with a question, something about comparison between uh, like rural and urban trends and denunciation or something, because where I was at the time, microhistory elucidating these sort of regional peculiarities was being pushed quite strongly. And the thing was, I didn't know 
how the collection I would be working with was organized. I had never seen a Gestapo file before. I'd only read descriptions of what types of things were in them. I thought that sounded really interesting. And so I knew that there were good stories there waiting to be written. But I didn't know. I didn't know really what I was going to find. And after 20 minutes of sitting down in the archive with them, I threw out the question that I had come in with on my proposal and, and started down a completely different route that revealed all sorts of new stuff. Now, I planned ahead for that, and I built flex time into my schedule to be able to pivot once I was there. And we'll talk about that later. But my point here is that your best ideas are always going to come from deep engagement with the sources. So how do you identify collections that are going to help you speak to whatever research question you end up with? Now, we've already talked about the ways in which you can find collections through secondary research, but let's say you're at the point where you moved on to sifting through different archives and sources in search of something specific related to a research question you've already developed and advanced upon. Well, great resource that I would suggest is www.archivportal.com hyphen d punct d e so www.archivportal hyphen d period d e this is a service offered by the deutsche digitale bibliothek about which i cannot say enough good so it's often really hard to know what archives are out there and know what collections are there. Archive Portal has basically taken the tectonics of all the different archives that are available. It's a voluntary service that people are registering for. But what they do is they essentially upload the tectonics of their individual archive into this broader portal. And the great thing about Archive Portal is that it will let you begin to combine Boolean search terms in ways that Vera and other local archival software sometimes won't. So essentially what you're getting is an overview of the tectonics and the collections of every federal and state archive in Germany. And what's more, it's all been compiled from collection descriptions. So when you start searching through, you will find things that sometimes aren't even appearing in the broader font description. You have to start digging down. It does all that work for you. So this is as close as you can get to the sources short of being in the reading room with the actual finding aids. Uh, more on those later. But with this tool, you are casting a net through the entirety, practically, of the German archival system. So it's particularly powerful when you're combining it with Boolean search terms, which actually work here. Like I said, sometimes on Vera and local software, they don't. So those of you who are familiar with the frustrations of trying to make a, say, state or regional archives search software actually find the things that you know you've seen before in their own collections, take heart, come to Archive Portal and you have an actual working tool. So if you throw in, say, a root word with an asterisk on the end or the front, it will let you search everything after that. So say if you throw in denun asterisk, you'll get every imaginable combination of denunciation, denunciat, denunciantentum, and so on and so on that would be cut out of any other search that you ran for an exact match. And then as you begin to add other terms and things like that, you begin to cut out all the white noise, start mixing and matching terms in this way with the Boolean searches, and you can start to get a very precise picture of which collections are out there in what archives, and in a way that I was only still dreaming of five years ago. So check that out by all means. The other option, especially if you're at a North American university, are the library and stellar interlibrary loan services available at most institutions. 
the national ministries and literally thousands of reels of regional documents were microfilmed by the Berlin Document Center and the microfilming project at Alexandria, organized by the American Historical Association after the Second World War. Uh, there is also a microfilming in England that appears and uh, a few other sources. So something close to 100 finding aids of anywhere between 200 to 1,000 pages long each that are covering all this material. There's a massive project undertaken to document all the captured records after the war. The miscellaneous party organizations one is, is a bit of a pain to work with, actually. It's not numbered by frame, and the finding aid is only accessible on real 999 of the collection, with some rather vague descriptions as well. Uh, but the point is that they're there, and particularly if you start to focus on German military records and everything that was administered by Himmler, uh, it's an absolute delight to work with. The aids have all been digitized and OCR'd, so you can actually word search certain things within the broader finding aid and narrow down the individual reels and frame numbers that you need to be looking at. There are some tricks here because the finding aids are actually typewritten uh, old ones, so you have to be careful about hyphens and smudged ink doesn't always come up in the search. But if you need somewhere to start, go put captured German records in the U.S. National Archives and Records Service website at www.archives.gov and be pleasantly surprised by the breadth of what you will find there. There's a ton that you can find in these collections, and many of the libraries have a few reels from the longer runs that are listed here on NARA National Archives, microfilm publications that you can find on archives.gov. So those will be kicking around in most libraries. I know that every university that I've been at has had a few of them available in the library at some point or another. Somebody in the history of your institution is going to have pulled some microfilm for some reason and purchased them from one of these runs. Find what you have access to and dig in. And seriously, you will be blown away by what you find. Uh, from there, you'll definitely begin to develop some ideas or at least develop the taste to then go out and find something more interesting that are available in the other finding aids. And let's say you don't have the necessary reels at your library, though. Well, check to see if your institution is part of the vaunted Center for Research Libraries and Global Resources Network. That's the CRL. The CRL is run through University of Chicago, I believe. Uh, but anyway, you can find out more at their website at www.crl.edu. I cannot say enough good about these people either. If you go to your campus ILL folks, maybe bring a bottle of wine and your very best manners, of course, but ask them if they can get you any of these sources. So the great thing about the CRL is essentially they are a library of microfilm sources and other random things that research libraries need access to. They will actually PDF the microfilm sources that they have and send them directly to you as a downloadable link if your interlibrary loan librarian will intercede on your behalf. So I cannot stress the utility of this service enough. If you can find something on microfilm and you have a connection to the CRL, you can get almost anything that has been published by the Washington National Archives. Now combine this with the word searchable OCR finding aids and you have pretty much everything you need to begin any project. Uh, I personally owe an immeasurable debt of gratitude to Velma Smith at Florida State University, who clued me in to the CRL resources and went through all the trouble of negotiating with them 
to get the digitized microfilm for me. Uh, honest to God, guys, though, she she's the best. And this service, if you are working with national level documents, can get you everything you need and certainly give you a taste for the harder stuff that you're going to need to get into at the regional and local levels. This takes us to your actual trip to the archive. Now, budgeting time. Everything about working archives is about budgeting time and using limited resources to make sure you are wringing the most from every moment you have available. The first question you're going to need to ask yourself while the subject of ILL and the CRL is still fresh in our minds is, can I get this source another way? Your experience may vary, but I know every time I step into a new archive, I am utterly overwhelmed by the sheer amount of material to be found. If you've never been through finding aids before and you're preparing for your first trip to an archive, it can be a paralyzing moment when you suddenly realize that there is more material there in a single collection than you could reasonably read in an entire lifetime. Now, I did the math. If I were to read every single Gestapo file in North Rhine-Westphalia at the average rate that I work through them, it would take with no breaks, 13 years, 9 months, 2 weeks, 2 days, 19 hours, and 20 minutes to finish. I don't want to rush myself, so I'm not going to keep track of the seconds, right? But uh, all joking aside, I hope you can see my point here. When you realize the amount of material you can find in one collection, it can be overwhelming. And if you aren't fortunate enough to live next to the archive or work at a nearby university, you'll be on an extremely constrained timeline. So question one is always, can I get this source another way? Can I get it on microfilm? Can I get it through ILL? Can I get it through the CRL? Can I get them to make a copy if I have the available resources? It's fun to work with original copies and certainly far easier on the eyes than staring at a light bulb that's trying to burn your retinas out on a microfilm reader. Of course, there's always the delights of physical history. I mean, one time I was flipping open a Gestapo case file and a gob of Nazi earwax fell out onto the table uh, from some nameless Gestapo officer. But leaving aside these delightful moments, uh, analyze the scarcity of the files that you're looking at, figure out what you can get another way, and, and prioritize the files that you can only get in the archive. If you're doing anything on policing, the SS or the Reich Security Main Office, check Washington National Archives Microfilm Publication T175. Oftentimes when you're searching, that should be T-175. The finding aid has three parts, hundreds of pages long. Look there first. It's one of the ones that you can search for terms in. You can get most decrees, circulars, internal memoranda, and, and so on and so forth right here. And you can get it as microfilm because it was part of the Alexandria filming or part of the Berlin Document Center transfers. That's going to save you time to work with the juicy stuff like case files and personnel records and local administration records and trials once you get in country. The second most important question you're going to need to ask yourself is what are the rules around reproductions? The State Library of Berlin, for example, is a leading light in this area. You just show up and pull PDF captures straight off the microfilm readers onto your own USB key. Uh, you can photograph anything you want in the reading room. Basically, if you have access to it, you can make a copy. You can photograph it yourself, anything. Other places, particularly when you're working with personnel files that contain private information, for reasons I hope are clear and understandable, are going to have mixed approaches. 
Uh, some of these places will provide you with redacted copies free of charge. Others are going to discourage the complete copy of the files by banning the use of cameras and charging an arm and a leg for reproductions. Others will give you free reign once you are through the front door. Ask what the policy is on the camera. Pester about official policy before you show up. Any possible exceptions. Ask what official policy or governing regulatory frameworks, laws are, and understand them, take a look at them, and begin to point out inconsistencies between policy and the law that may work to your advantage. Because again, this is something that's going to save you time and resources if you can get copies without having to waste time transcribing things by hand. Before you show up, that's the best time to do it. You're not a known quantity yet. You're just an email. There's no relationship with the archivist that you can sabotage. You're just asking questions, right? After you're there, you become the annoying person who keeps trying to break the system. Being persistent and polite can still open some doors here, especially after you've put in the time building relationships at the archive. But knowing where you're going to be able to run through digitizing files with your sweet archival camera rig, which you should immediately set up if you do not already have, and where they're going to force you to sit down and take the time to transcribe anything you want to reference in the future is all going to factor into your planning time. Now that might make it seem like you need to know what you're going to get when you go in and have everything planned out like a train timetable. But the reason you want to be clear about anything you can get somewhere else or photograph is your schedule so you can build flex time. Why do you need flex time? Well, there are a few reasons here. And the foremost one is that you don't know how things are going to work on the ground for one. Archives vary widely by country, culture, and even just the luck of the draw on who you're talking to on the other side of the desk that day and how much energy they're willing to put into your question on a Friday, right? So first, there are the practical considerations. How long does it take for that archive to pull files from their magazines? In North Rhine-Westphalia, where the files were kept on site, it was twice daily, with plenty of digitized material accessible through the machines in the reading room to start you out right away as soon as you had signed in. At the National Archives of Canada, five days in advance are necessary if you need to access the material on the day that you arrive, and 24 hours are required to pull the material out from the magazine, which is on the other side of the city across the river in Gatineau which is a separate city, national capital region. I digress. Regardless, the next question and thing that you need to figure out once you get in country are how the laws governing privacy and freedom of information play out within the archive that you're in. Because, say, working in the federal archive is different than working in many state or city archives. Now, they're all under the same laws, but the interpretation and policy sometimes varies quite widely. This depends a lot on the country that you're in, of course, but also the topic that you're investigating and whether it could be considered politically sensitive as well. The archival culture of the country that you're in also plays a certain role. Some countries are still more old school where they see themselves as curators and protectors and sort of like dragons on a hoard of paper treasure that must be preserved and held in secret in perpetuity. Their, their clients are government. And then there are archivists who are about preserving cultural heritage and spreading information and knowledge. So there, there are different sort of approaches. And that, that varies, again, by country institution and who you're dealing with on the other side of the desk. 
So some examples just to give you the scope of some of the roadblocks and unexpected time sinks that you might run into when you show up. Uh, take, for example, the Russian Federation, who threw open the Soviet secret archives through the 1990s, but started to restrict access again and seal certain collections based on cultural politics surrounding the Stalinist era in current patriotic narratives. However, if you want to access Fond 500 from the KGB's secret archive, that's still surprisingly easy since it concerns captured German records and fits neatly into the narrative of anti-fascism surrounding the Great Patriotic War, as World War II is referred to in Russia. In Poland, uh, to access some archives actually requires a local historian to vouch for you personally and uh, speak to your reliability before you're permitted access. Here, showing up and being a familiar face is important, right? I've heard a lot about this from my friends who work in Latin American archives as well. Your experience and access becomes markedly different and improves the more familiar the archivists become with you. In Canada, you can see the fonds that are available, but many are sealed if you're working on issues that relate to defense, justice, policing, or intelligence. Like, say, a series of Privy Council briefings I saw the other week that relate to the situation in the USSR from the late 40s in Central Germany or Central Europe and Germany, those were still sealed. So I can make the argument and meet with an archivist and ask to see the files. But sometimes you have to play the guessing game of what's in the collection and does it relate to your research question. So preliminary research is sometimes quite time consuming in these cases and you have to phrase your question carefully to make sure that you're getting what you want. In other cases, the files are supposed to be accessible, but nobody's reviewed them and nobody's asked for them. So you just happen to be the first person and it just has to go through an archivist who goes, oh yeah, that's supposed to be accessible. Sorry about that. So again, all of that takes time and you have to be accounting for that and invest the time to work through those roadblocks as they arrive when you get there. You, you need to expect them and plan for them. By comparison, Germany is the clearest example I've encountered of what anthropologists would term a transactional rather than a personal culture. And they also have this vested interest in being transparent about the Nazi past. So when you show up and you use the system correctly, you can expect easy access if you agree to play by the rules and you keep your word. Now, nobody is going to cut you any special favors, though, and you're going to have to expect to go through that system every time you want to access something new. But... You'll be a happy camper if you're working on the Nazi period because many of the collections were repatriated under an agreement that they might be kept open to the public while things are, say, getting a bit trickier in Poland now because of sensitivity concerning Polish involvement in the Holocaust. Uh, for instance, one of my emails that I sent out simply just straight up was not answered. So, like I say, flex time is important because no matter how well you think you know the system before you get there, there's what's on the website, and there's how things really work. The second reason that you need to build in flex time is because really the longer you can stay at a single archive uh, until you're just part of the furniture in the background, the more receptive archivists are going to be to your work. Never forget that you're working with people and relying on others to make everything that you do possible. The archivists are sorely underappreciated for what they're doing for historians who would not be able to write what they're writing without their help. And besides that, the longer that you spend in the archive, the more likely they are to recognize how serious you are about a project. 
uh, that you're invested and there's just this natural human tendency to connect over a shared interest in the files that they're custodians for. Some of my closest friends and most helpful colleagues in the projects I've worked on are archivists thanks to this familiarity that's been built up over time. So don't underestimate the power of that familiarity. Even with people that you've never met or developed anything more than a transactional working relationship with. The woman who managed the special permissions request at Duisburg, for example, she got so fed up with seeing my name on the requests over and over as my research kept expanding that she came out to meet me and joked about it to get a better grip on where things were headed and then just gave me access to all the Nazi court files so that I could see the scope of the collection and, and get at what I really needed to get at. Uh, remember that the system relies on people and that being friendly and being thankful and budgeting that time just to be there and, and be a familiar face is going to open a lot of doors with folks who are going to improve your work immeasurably. On the point with access to court records, this is another one that I can't stress enough. You do not know what you are going to find once you get there. So this would be the third reason that you need flex time. No matter how prepared you are, once you start going through the detailed finding aids that give you detailed descriptions of what can be found in particular fonts and individual boxes, and in most cases that can only be accessed on site, you are going to have kid in a candy store syndrome. I'm going to take a bit of this, I'm going to have a nibble on that, ooh, that looks like a tasty pile, right? Like, I, I suffer from a condition that German historians and archivists have actually developed a specific term for. It's called Aktenhunger, file hunger. So... Some people can be very surgical. They know what they want when they go in. And this is very important when you are advanced in your project, you've moved down the line, you know what you're looking for, and you're investigating a specific, specific lead. You know, you just, you go in, you pull the file, you, and you get out. And this is sort of the archival equivalent of Vikings showing up on the doorstep of your monastery for the gold. You go in, you grab the goodies, and you get out. For myself, and especially when starting a new project in that sort of preliminary research stage, immersing yourself in the primaries, I like to mine an archive to see all that it has to offer. So my thinking on the subject is this. When you're on site somewhere, you're rarely going to be in a better position to find out more about anything interesting that might pop up in your research than the time that you are there, of course, right? You need, it's circular, but bears mention. You will have a few leads that are the reason that you went there. But as you start to get to digging, you're going to have other ones that pop up. Uh, some of them are going to lead you different places. That's when you need to do your Viking raid in another small archive. But let's say you're trying to get a handle on how things work in a particular region. Let's start with an institution, say the Gestapo. Well, you're going to show up and you're going to go through their files and you're going to find out that they talk a lot with the police president. So all of a sudden, you need to check the police president files. And then when you went in, you thought everything would be organized through the inspector of security police. But that's not the case. In fact, there are a whole bunch of other regional authorities that are in constant discussion. And there's a working group. So you need to look into the working group of who's showing up to these meetings and what's being discussed there, those types of things. Or all of a sudden, you're going through case files. You start to see local mayors as police authorities pop up repeatedly in political cases. So you need to start looking at local administration files for actual individual, uh, individual rural districts and municipalities. Myself, uh, I, I know that I am somewhat indulgent in this area, but that's also just the way that I've found is the most fruitful work. 
to work. but say on the last trip, I knew I needed to collect material for context from what I had done on previous trips and find a few leads from my next project. So I set aside a third of my time for orientation and exploration. I had three months and I knew from experience that I could transcribe around 100 files a month. I needed a sample of 200. And so that left me a month to explore, cross-reference other records for context, follow up on leads and just, you know, find generally interesting stuff for a new project. Budgeting time is budgeting the opportunity to follow those leads. Finally, if this sounds overwhelming, it is. Unless you have a very, very narrow set of objectives, there's always going to be more to do than you have time for. The book is never going to be finished. It's only going to be done when you say it's done. When you're headed into the archive, budgeting the flex time is giving you the opportunity to get your bearings, to explore, to reorient, and to really find your stride. And if you don't do that, you can find yourself in a real predicament or not having had enough time to truly develop enough research to get your dissertation done or to get your book done, regardless of what step you are in in your career. Well, on that note, I think I'll draw this particular installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. I know that I listed a lot of different websites and potential resources this time, so I will throw those up in hyperlinks in the bump that shows up in the episode description underneath whatever podcast application you happen to be using. You can check those out, and yeah, you can follow up and hopefully find something that's useful for your own research. Speaking of research, Chris is still buried in the final stages of his dissertation, and And it takes a lot more time and effort to put together an episode that is drawing together information from other sources. And, you know, I don't want to be just churning things out. I want to be putting together something that would be useful for you guys. So I have a little bit more to cover concerning the archives that are available. I, I was going to do a little bit on newspaper research and what can be found in the federal archive collections in Berlin. But after that point, the release schedule is going to scale back to once a month since it's just me at the moment who's carrying the torch once a month we'll leave enough time to put together something that's sufficiently in-depth to be interesting and useful hopefully when it's the two of us just reading an article or a book and then having a conversation about it the prep time is that's involved is much less than when you're sitting down and trying to organize your thoughts for what is almost like a, a recorded lecture right so We all of us hope, I am sure, that Chris returns soon so that we continue the scintillating and sometimes heated conversations that ensue over our exchange of ideas on the recent history of the Third Reich. But until then, you should be expecting once a month something more in-depth than the last few episodes have been. On that note, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.